The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing, our sermon text this evening comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Our sermon text is going to be verses 8 onward through the end of the chapter, but for context's sake, we're going to read the entire chapter. Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men. And go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a, mem- as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on us this evening as we begin to study this portion of his word. Our glorious and gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would send your spirit now to accompany the preaching of your word, that you would indeed speak until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Show us, O Lord, your glory, and show us, O Lord, your faithfulness towards your people here in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us uh, two weeks ago, you'll remember that... 
At this point in the book of Exodus, we've come to that period in the book of Exodus, which is a kind of a transition period. It's a period between the time when the people are in Egypt and the Lord has redeemed them. He's delivered them out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, and now they are traveling on their way to Mount Sinai. You remember that the two poles of the book of Exodus really are the land of Egypt and Mount Sinai. This is where the majority of the the narrative takes place. But this small segment of the book, which is couched in between these two poles, is very significant nonetheless. You see, the New Testament regularly points us to this situation, this uh, experience of the people of Israel as they wander through the wilderness as an example of what our own pilgrimage is like in this life. We noted that already. We also noted that the wilderness is a place of trial. It's a place of tribulation. It's a place of danger. And most importantly, it's a place of testing. We've already seen that the Lord, as he has brought his people into this land, this desolate land of the wilderness, he has began to administer them, if you will, a battery of tests. If you remember, we were talking about how the Lord is testing them to see whether or not they have learned the lessons that he was seeking to teach them as he delivered them from the land of Egypt. And we saw over And over and over again, that sadly the people have failed to remember, to have faith, to understand, to learn what the Lord God was seeking to teach them. We've seen them grumble. We've seen them complain. We've seen them do everything they could possibly do, really, except for have faith in the Lord God who has just delivered them. And... We didn't just see them failing the test that the Lord was administered to them. We also saw the Lord graciously entering into a period of remedial education. He has been, up to this point, showing them, as they fail to understand who he is, who he is again. They fail to understand that he is a God who wants to protect his people. And he comes and he proves that he is a God who wants to protect his people. They fail to understand that he is a God who is committing to, committed to providing for his people. And he comes and he shows them again that he is a God who is desirous to provide for his people. And they forget, again, as we just read, of his presence They doubt that he is with them. And again, he faithfully comes forth and shows them that he is indeed a God who is always present with his people. And now as we come to this particular section of chapter 17, we see the Lord continuing to re-educate, continuing to do this summer school, as it were, of God's grace for the people of Israel. Because we see here in this text that the Lord continues to teach them his commitment and his goodness towards his people. And as we see them confronted with this danger of the attack of the Amalekites here, what we see in the text is that the Lord is teaching them that though they might face many dangers, as it were, in this world, in this wilderness... Nonetheless, they can have confidence that the Lord their God is a God who will defend his people. And not only will he defend his people, but he will also declare his judgments upon their enemies. That's what I want us to see this evening 
as we look at this text. Because this text teaches us first the faithfulness of the Lord God of Israel to his people in the Old Covenant. But it still today speaks to us of our God's faithfulness to his own covenant people. We, friends, still serve a God who is faithful that when we encounter the dangerous attacks of the enemies of God in this world, he will defend his people and he will execute, he will declare his judgments on their enemies. We're going to see then this text under those three headings. We're going to see first uh, that the Lord... Uh, provides for the people in their moment of danger. We're going to see the danger that they confront. And then we're going to see the defense that the Lord mounts for them after that. And then last of all, we're going to see the declaration of God's judgment. Now let's begin then by looking at verse 8 and considering for a moment the danger that's present to God's people in this text. We've already alluded in many ways to part of the danger towards God's people in this text. And that is uh, that God's people here, even though we've said it already, it bears repeating again, they find themselves in a dangerous place. You notice the text begins that the people of Israel are still in Rephidim. They're still in that desolate place. They're still in that, that rugged terrain which they have been languishing in throughout this period of the book of Exodus. They find themselves there, surrounded, as it were, by this inhospitable environment. They face environmental dangers, the dangerous place. But what we see is significant about this, and we see it more clearly in Deuteronomy's account of this attack, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, is that because the people of Israel are in this desolate place, they are in a vulnerable state. Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us that uh, the Amalekites came and attacked them when they were faint, when they were uh, weary from traveling. You see, this environment that they had been traveling through is not only dangerous because of the lack of water and food, but it's also dangerous because it's exhausted the people. And as we come to this point of the text, that's the state they're in, and that's significant. We'll see it in just a few moments. They're exhausted, they're weary, they're in a dangerous place. But we see more significantly in this text that they face a dangerous enemy. You see, as always, no matter how dangerous an environment on planet Earth can be, the most dangerous thing that's there is often, well, people. And that's the case here. You see, as they are in this desert environment, this wilderness environment, there are enemies lurking. And these enemies present themselves here. We see the Amalekites, Amalek, attacks them. And and as we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 25, he attacks them in a particularly dangerous way. He attacks them, Deuteronomy chapter 25 tells us, from the rear. And by attacking them from the rear, what he does is he actually envelops their lagging, weary, most vulnerable people. You can think for a moment of what it would be like to be wandering through the wilderness as the people of Israel are here. And if we were all to get outside and do that today, we know that those of us who were weak would begin to fall back. The elderly, the infirmed, the children perhaps begin to lag behind the people of Israel. And as Amalekites come, they attack that most vulnerable part of the people of Israel. That's the method of their attack. 
Deuteronomy 25, though, also tells us something else. It tells us the motive of their attack. You see, the Amalekites did not fear the Lord. It's a remarkable thing to note. We could think for a moment, maybe the Amalekites haven't heard what Yahweh has done to the Egyptians. Or perhaps they have, and they just think that their gods are stronger than Yahweh. Whatever the case, they attack the people of Israel, and as they attack the people of Israel, they look upon the people of God, and they see nothing but a weary band of exhausted ex-slaves. They see nothing but vulnerability. And when they attack, they fully expect to destroy them, to raid them, to loot them, to take all their stuff, and to have the victory. Of course, we're going to see that that's not exactly what happens in the text because they've made a dangerous miscalculation. But before we move on from considering the danger of this text, I think it's important, friends, for us to apply this text the way the New Testament does. You know, the New Testament, as I mentioned before, constantly draws the parallel between the people of God wandering through the wilderness and our own spiritual journey in this present evil age. And we can see some of the parallels here, can't we? I mean, think about it for a moment. We exist in a dangerous environment. Friends, this world is a dangerous place for a Christian. We know that. We know that we are heavenly people. And this world is not suited to our heavenly nature. Everywhere we go, we see the danger around us. Just the environmental dangers of this world, as we could say. Perhaps the flesh, the world, as it were, is against us. We are in a dangerous place. But we also travel through a dangerous place that is occupied by dangerous enemies. We, like the people of Israel, are in a state, in some sense, of vulnerability in this world. At least apparent vulnerability. When the world looks upon the Christian of today, probably sees us a lot like the Amalekites saw the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. Weak. Defenseless. Vulnerable. And the enemies of God's people employ similar tactics in a spiritual sense to the way that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. Now think about that for a second. Any tactically sound enemy will seek to attack their foe at their most vulnerable point and at the most inconvenient time. That's why, for instance, whenever I was in the United States military, uh, we used to do something called stand to. I don't know if there's anybody here who's familiar with that. But what that means is that right before the break of dawn, everyone who's in a defensive position wakes up And you all orient yourself out because you know that many times the enemy attacks at daybreak because they believe it's the most vulnerable time. And friends, I think that we can see the tactics that the enemy uses on the people of Israel here in a physical sense. And we can be reminded of the tactics that our spiritual enemies use against us. They attack us at the least convenient time, at the most vulnerable place, and they do so in such a way to do the utmost damage to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I would say to you here is that we need to do a spiritual form of stand to, don't we? The Bible calls that watchfulness, it calls that being on guard. I particularly want to note that 
our congregation is about to enter into a period of particular vulnerability. I don't know if you've seen the stats on church plants, but friends, it is not encouraging. 80% of church plants fail. 40% fail in the first two years. That's a sobering thought. And not only that, the situation that we're about to enter into by planting a church will leave, in some ways, the mother church more vulnerable. Friends, I think we ought to recognize our vulnerability, and I think we ought to be watchful. Watchful over our own hearts, yes, but also watchful over our conduct. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't do anything, that we don't allow the enemy to exploit our vulnerability and to take advantage of our situation. But nonetheless, I don't want to discourage you here because this is not a discouraging text. You see, the Amalekites attack the people of Israel thinking that they're vulnerable, but as I mentioned already, they make a tragic miscalculation. Look at what happens as the text continues. You see, as the Amalekites attack, uh, Moses comes up with a plan very quickly. And, and what he does is he, he sets Joshua off to choose men from Israel to go out and fight the enemies of God. And then he himself decides that the best thing for him to do, and uh, we'll see, it's, it's very important. He, he goes up onto the top of a hill, but he doesn't just go himself. He takes with him the staff of God in his hand. And you see that as Moses goes up upon this hill and he takes with him Aaron and her, and he lifts up his hands, most likely with the staff in his hands, the people of God gain the victory over their enemies. Now think about how amazing that is for a moment. Here we have the Amalekites who seem from all accounts to be a dangerous and really a practiced desert raiding band who has probably done this many times. They've probably attacked many groups of people out in the wilderness before. And they come and they attack the people of Israel, assuming, as we would imagine, victory. And yet, as they attack this group of weary, beaten up, half-starved to death, it seems, slaves, what happens? Well, the Lord shows up and he defends his people. The Lord defends his people. And we see that here as the text develops. You see Moses held up his hands. And we have this interesting situation here where as Moses holds up his hands, Israel prevails, right? And whenever he lowers his hands, uh, Israel begins to lose. And so Moses has to be assisted by Aaron and her, and they come alongside him and they keep his hands held high. Now I mentioned already that most likely what's happening here is that Moses is holding up the staff of God. We, we would assume that because he takes it up to the hill specifically, it seems, for that purpose. Now that's significant, isn't it? If you think for just a moment, and, and to, be all, to be honest with you, I hadn't thought a lot about the staff until this week. But if you look at the history of this staff throughout the, the book of Exodus, it's really remarkable. You know, the Lord sets this staff apart in Exodus chapter 4, uh, to be used uh, for signs. Particularly, he, he allows it there to be turned into a snake. And we see Moses use it that way before Pharaoh to try to make the point to Pharaoh that he comes in the name of a God who is able to deliver his people. 
But we see it a number of times throughout the book in very important situations. We see it, for instance, used to turn the water of Egypt into blood in Exodus chapter 7. We see it used in Exodus chapter 14 to split the sea in two. We see it used in the first portion of chapter 17 to bring water from the rock to provide for the people. And what we can learn from all of that is that this staff is not just some stick, but it is a symbol, as it were, of God's presence and His power for His people and against His enemies. That is the weapon, as it were, that Moses takes upon the hill. Not a stick, but Yahweh. And as he stands there, it seems, with this stick raised high, God gains the victory for his people. Though they be weak, though they be weary, we could say with the New Testament here, if the Lord God of Israel is for us, who can be against us? And that's what we see demonstrated here. Friends, that's a lesson for us, just as it is a lesson for the Israelites, especially after the discouragement I just laid on you in the first point of the sermon, right? We can be sobered by our situation in this world. It is seemingly vulnerable. It's seemingly very vulnerable. This is a kingdom, as it were, that is not of this world, not one of swords or weapons. But nonetheless, we have a powerful weapon. We have a powerful king. And we have one who has committed himself to defending his kingdom. And we see it here. If God is for us, then who can be against us? The Amalekites were a fierce enemy, but they made a tragic miscalculation. They made a tragic miscalculation. As we see as the text moves forward, We don't just see the Lord defeating the enemies of his people and defending his people here, do we? We see more than that. As we turn to verse 14, we see that the Lord doesn't just defend his people from danger, but he declares his judgment upon their enemies. Look at what he does here. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Think about that for a moment. These people have come and they have attacked Israel. Not only have they attacked Israel, they've attacked them at the most vulnerable point. They've sought to destroy God's people. They've sought to exploit God's people. They've sought to take advantage of their lowly state in this world. And the Lord doesn't just defend His people. He doesn't just preserve them. But He turns in wrath against the Amalekites. He turns against the enemies of God's people. And He makes it clear here that the enemies of God's people have not just made an enemy of the church. They haven't just made an enemy of God's people. But they've made an enemy of God Himself. And He will not forget it. Look at the extent of His declaration here. It's not just for a moment that He judges the Amalekites. He doesn't just smite them, as it were, in this particular battle. No, He is going to utterly blot out their memory from the earth. In many ways, the rest of the Old Testament gives us a narrative of this taking place. 
we see the Israelites at war with the Amalekites until they exterminate them finally during the reign of David and Solomon. And God gets the victory finally. He takes vengeance. He exercises judgment upon his enemies. And he does so in such a way that demonstrates to us not only his attitude towards the Amalekites, but his attitude towards all those who would seek to take advantage of his people in this world. Now, this is important. What takes place here to the Amalekites, we could say, is perhaps a preview of coming attractions. You see, a a lot of people have a big problem with what takes place during the conquest of the land. And this is in some ways a preview of that as well, isn't it? A lot of Christians, they they get a little upset when we start talking about Israel going in and, and basically killing everyone, wiping everyone from the face of Canaan. That makes us uncomfortable. A friend, I want you to think about this for a second. If you're uncomfortable with that, then you should be very uncomfortable with what the book of Revelation tells us is going to take place at the last hour, on the last day, during the last final battle. Friends, this is a preview of what will happen then. Here we see God's judgment breaking in, as it were, breaking in and demonstrating for us what God will in the end do to every single one of His enemies. And friends, it's a sobering thought. It is. It's a sobering thought. It's not one that we really prefer to dwell on, especially in our culture and in our day. But we need to meditate upon it for two reasons. The first reason, I think, is that it's great comfort to God's people. Let's be honest, that's important. It's a great comfort to God's people. Because we all, in some way, shape, or form, know what it's like to suffer for the sake of Christ. If you're truly a believer, you have, in some way, shape, or form, faced persecution. And your God has not forgotten that. Your God has not forgotten that. And even if you haven't personally can't sit there right now and think about a time where you have been persecuted, you know, you know that at this very moment, there are your brothers and sisters somewhere rotting in a jail cell. Friends, there are members of the Presbyterian Church, which the Orthodox Presbyterian Church planted in Eritrea to this day, most likely sitting in shackles in the desert somewhere. Let that sit in for a moment. God's people suffer greatly in this world. But do not for a moment think that God has forgotten what the enemies of his people have done to them. And do not for a minute think that the Lord will allow them to escape from his judgment and his wrath. It's a comfort to us. But second, it should also be Uh, really a sobering thing to contemplate for anyone who is separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, let me be very clear. If you're here this evening and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. There is no neutrality 
in the spiritual battle which we see taking place on the pages of the book of Exodus here. There is no neutrality. You cannot take the Swiss option here. You can't opt out of the war and just ride it out until the end. It doesn't work that way. You're either for him or you're against him. And friend, if you're here this evening and you are against him, you're an enemy of the living God, then you need to look at this text and you need to be sobered by it. Because in this text we see that God is not a God who lets his enemies off lightly. He will judge them. He will judge them. And that's something that you need to meditate upon. As we meditate upon that, it's important also, friends, that I tell you that there is one. There is one who provides a way to the Father. There is one in whom you can find peace with the God who judges all humanity. That, friends, is good news when we look upon this text and we realize that whether or not we are a Christian today or not, even if you are a Christian today, you can think of a time when you weren't. And you can think of a time where God's judgment that we see here turned so harshly, so finely against the Amalekites, that wrath was turned against you. We can give thanks for that. And if you're here this evening and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say that the same God who visits judgment upon his enemy is the same God who offers salvation to those who will come to him and who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and rest in him for their salvation. Friends, that's good news. That's good news for us. That's good news for you, whether you're a Christian or not this evening. And if you're not... I would beckon you to come and to believe upon this one and find peace with this God. But we see something else here. At the very end of the text, verses 15 and 16, we see that Moses does something in response to God's great victory and in response to God's declaration of his judgment upon the Amalekites, doesn't he? They don't just walk off and not really think about it again, do they? The people of God respond. They respond to the Lord showing up and defending them. They respond to the Lord promising to visit His vengeance upon those who have mistreated them. And they respond by building an altar. They respond, friends, with worship. That's what we see here. We see the response of God's people to God's defense of his people. And the response of God's people here is a response of worship. And as Moses builds this altar, he names it appropriately, The Lord is my banner. We could ask the question at this point, what does that mean? What it means is this. It means that as the Lord's people go into battle... And they will go into many more battles before the promises that the Lord has made to them come true, won't they? They have a lot of fighting to do yet. A lot. And as they do so, they do so with the assurance that the Lord God himself is their, their banner. Their banner. He is, in a sense, that, that military flag that stands in front of the people. That guidon full of streamers. That great rallying point of the people. And as they look upon the Lord, they realize that that 
is their strength. That is the one among whom they can take courage as they go into battle because he is with his people. The Lord is their banner and the Lord, friends, is our banner. And that, friends, ought to fill us with a great deal of courage and confidence as we go forth into this world. Because we are surrounded with hostility. We are surrounded with enemies. And yet, we can say with the people of Israel, God is our banner. He is our flag. He is our rallying point. It is to Him we look when we come into conflict, both with our spiritual enemies and even with those who seek to oppress God's church in a physical and outward way. The Lord is our banner. And the Lord, we get another reminder here, will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We see again uh, the way in which the God, God has judged these enemies. It's not temporal. It is eternal, really, until they're wiped off the face of the earth. Friends, as we consider... What we've seen here this evening, I think it's important for us to be able to say as believers, even here this evening, with the people of Israel, that the Lord is our banner. And that as we take that blessing, as we take that, that title upon our lips, that we would be reminded, just as the people of, of God learn here in Exodus chapter 17, that though we, though we travel through a dangerous land, Though we face dangerous attacks by the enemies of this world, yet nonetheless, we as well can have confidence that our God will defend us and that he will declare his judgments upon our enemies. And friends, that ought to fill us with confidence. It ought to fill us with joy. And it ought to make our Christian lives ones in which we look for victory over God's enemies. And we take encouragement as we seek to do the work of his kingdom, which is ever advancing. Friends, we have that glorious promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, that you have shown us here in this text your love and your commitment and your faithfulness towards your people once again. We thank you, O Lord, that we can go forth into this world of great danger and peril for heavenly people such as ourselves, that we can traverse the wilderness of this present evil age, that we can suffer the attacks of our enemies, and we can do that with confidence that you will defend us and with faith that you, in the end, will bring all things into account, that you will judge your enemies and our enemies because they are one and the same. We ask, O Lord, now that you would bless us with the knowledge of your graciousness, of your love towards us in Jesus Christ, and that you would grant to us that we would have hearts that were strong and full of love to you, and of boldness for the kingdom of Christ in light of what we have heard this evening. We pray it in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.